Good morning, everybody. I'd like to call your attention today to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 12 through 19. And if we are final, shall please stay. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Where are you found to be misrepresented God because we testified about God that he raised Christ? Whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, futile and, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people must most to be pitied. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we come again, Lord, before your throne of grace, Lord, we look to you asking for understanding. Lord, these glorious truths that you've given us in uh, writing in your word, uh, we, we seek to rightly understand and uh, rightly uh, understand how these things apply, how they make a difference in our everyday life, how they make a difference in our the way we think and the way we speak, the way we see the future and anticipate future events. Lord, I ask now for your anointing to deliver the message you would have delivered here. Pray that you open all of our ears to hear the truth of your word for our edification and for your honor and glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Amen. I <clears throat> really appreciate um, David and Zach, Dan, appreciate the song. All a blessing. Last Sunday, we, um, we, we covered in pretty good detail, I think, pretty much, um, verses 12 um, through 17. Now, what I really want to do this morning is, is focus in um, primarily on verse 19. But, you know, we need to have it in context as always. And so I wanted David to uh, um, go back to verse 12 and read 12 through 19, which he did, um, so that it reminds us of the issue here and what Paul is dealing with. Now, <clears throat> remember, as we've been going all the way through the book of Corinthians, he's dealing with various problems. Uh, issues in the in the church at Corinth. This is uh, um, 
uh, a church in the city of uh, Corinth, an ancient, uh, ancient Greek city. Of course, this is written there in the time of the Roman Empire. And he's writing to Christians there, addressing problems that he's heard about and addressing problems that they have, or issues that they have asked him about. So we've gone through uh, many, many different issues. And the one he's addressing here in chapter 15 is that of the resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection. So again, one reason I wanted those verses read is because in verse 12, um, he mentions it straight up, uh, the issue, the problem in the church of Corinth, and that is that some say that there is no resurrection. Verse 12, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, and that's the case he just made in verses 1 through 11, if, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And what we've done in these previous verses is try to show, um, first, the objective reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then the implications um, that, that result. In other words, if it's real, if Christ was really raised, because this is the way that Paul is arguing, if, if Christ was really raised from the dead, physically, bodily, then it has implications for us. There's hope for us. And what Paul does is show that our hope rests on the reality of the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ, and then, again, consequently, the resurrection of believers. Without that, we have no hope. Uh, strangely enough, some in the Corinthian church apparently accepting the resurrection of Christ, but then um, not accepting that we will all be resurrected in bodily fashion. And so Paul is, is saying, in short, that means, if you're correct, that means we have no hope. Again, you look at verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Paul's just saying logically, if you're going to say there's no resurrection, then that also does away with the resurrection of Christ. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, Paul says. That is, it's empty. It's void of any meaning, any significance. And your faith is in vain. It's your faith in Christ, if there's no resurrection, your faith is empty of any meaning or significance. And Paul goes on to say, we are found to be misrepresenting God. He's talking about those who proclaim the gospel because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So he's saying, again, he's saying, if, if what you are saying is correct, then our preaching is empty. Your faith is empty. We are found to be liars, misrepresenting God, and we're still... In our sins. He goes on to say that. Um, if the dead are not raised, verse 16, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then in verse 18, he says, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So there's another implication. Those believers who have already died, Paul says, if there's no resurrection, they've perished. They have died without hope. And then he focuses back on the living in verse 19. And again, this is what I really want to concentrate on today. Because we, we live in hope of what lies beyond our physical death. If you take away the resurrection, 
you take away all hope. This idea of, and this is what Paul's going to say in different words, of course, but this idea of, you know, be all that you can be in this life and become the ultimate human and so forth, in the end leaves you with no hope, no significance. So, Paul says, if in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Interesting statement. And again, one of the reasons he's, he's even saying this is because our hope as believers rests upon the reality of the resurrection. First of all, the resurrection of Christ, that He did in fact truly die and was buried, like you see in the first few verses of chapter 15, and that on the third day He was raised again out of the dead. <laughs> out from among the dead. And that, again, assures us that the same will be true for us as well. I was telling someone the other morning, we were having a discussion about um, death, and I, I think that it is, it is natural and probably even right. I mean, I think I'm, I think I'm correct to say that it's, it's even right that we should dread death. But, but hear me here. This is what I mean by that. The Bible, th- throughout the Bible, the Lord presents death, that is, death itself, the experience of death, as the enemy. And that never changes. It's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. In fact, we're going to see later in this chapter that it is the last enemy to be put under the Lord's feet. In other words, we're, we are still experiencing it to some extent now. Now, if you're in Christ, there's, there's one sense in which you will never know death. You and I will never know death in a spiritual sense, in the sense of being separated from God. Jesus says, whoever lives and believes on me shall never die. But in terms of physical death, you and I still face that. Unless the Lord comes in our lifetime and, you know, and we're instantly transformed, Unless that happens, we're going to go through physical death. Death is still a reality for the Christian as well as for the non-Christian. It is the enemy for the Christian. But here's, here's the difference. Sometimes, like in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews talks about living in the bondage of the fear of death. Why is that? Well, the, the idea there, I think, is, is the idea of living in the fear of what's beyond it. In other words, it's not just death itself, which, which is a scary thing, let's face it. But what's beyond it? And this is what Paul is saying about the resurrection. The reality of the, of the resurrection removes the fear of death in that sense. It's not that we should love, again, not that we should love the experience of death itself. It's the enemy. But, we can still live this life looking forward to death in one sense. In other words, again, not, not, you may not like the idea of actually going through the experience of death, but you can look forward to getting on the other side of it, right? And the resurrection is the grounds of our hope. 
there. You take away the doctrine of the resurrection, you have no hope of life on the other side of death. Paul says those who have fallen asleep or died in the Lord have perished. If you Corinthians are right, if there's no resurrection, they've just perished. And those of us who live, our hope is taken away. So, verse 19, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only. In other words, if you Corinthians are right and there's no resurrection to look forward to, then the only hope we have in Christ is for this life only. That's kind of a extreme makeover type thing, right? I mean, we just we just get a uh, we we get reformed. We get better habits. <laughs> Hopefully, you know, life's a little better in a lot of ways. Well, Paul is saying if that's the case, we're of all people most to be pitied. Now, what a statement! What a statement! We've had accounts in church history of people saying things. I'm sure this probably gets said all the time, but one in particular that I remember, I just can't remember who to credit. Uh, you know who, who, who that was that said it. But they were asked, "What if it's not real? What if Christianity turns out to be false? What if there is no God?" And the answer that came back was, "Well, hey." We still benefited in a lot of ways. We we lived a good life. We lived a good, clean, moral life. We helped our neighbors and on and on and on. So so it's 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 all good. But contrast that with what Paul says here. I mean that because that sounds on the surface, that sounds pretty noble, doesn't it? Well, if it all turns out to be false, hey, we've led a good clean life, so there's still some benefit. Not what Paul says. There's no resurrection. We're of all men the most to be pitied. Of all people, the most to be pitied. Uh, the old King James says the most miserable. Why does, why does Paul say that? Why, why doesn't he say, well, even if it's not true, I've lived a good, clean life. Well, I want to think a little bit about history. Some biblical and some extra biblical. And by that I just mean some of it that's recorded in the Bible and some that's not recorded in the Bible and I want to, uh, because it came after. And I want to read you some examples of that. But just, just think for a moment about the testimonies we have in the Scriptures of the saints throughout the ages. I think, for example, as you know, I was looking at this and I'm just thinking of lives and people living by faith. And my mind went to uh, Hebrews 11. It's kind of a roll call of heroes of the faith. And in Hebrews 11, I'm going to read a portion of it here. But it, it, it starts out, and of course the idea here is living by faith. Faith is, verse 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are, that, are, that are visible. It goes on to say in verse 6, 
that without faith it is impossible to please Him, that is, please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe, that is, have faith, that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And then it goes on to cite examples of people who have lived godly lives, who have lived by faith. It speaks of Abel, Enoch, and Noah, and Abraham, and Sarah. And then you get down to verse 13, and there's a kind of a, a break in the, the listing there. And the author of Hebrews writes, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is a desire of better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Now, he's already mentioned in these first 12 verses of the book of Hebrews, in the ch- uh, Hebrews chapter 11, he's already mentioned several heroes of the faith and said, these died not having received the things promised. Not only that, but they existed as strangers and exiles on the earth. Not exactly a, a, a life of, of a bed of roses. Now you go back and read the accounts and you see some wonderful things going on in their life, but you also see some hardships, some trials, much endurance. And he goes on to talk about the children of Israel and Rahab and others, and you get down to verse 32. I'm still in Hebrews 11. You get down to verse 32 and he says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. And, and, you, and you, again, you think about the lives of some of these and, and the mixture of triumph and trial. David, for example, the greatest king in the history of Israel. But he was also the man who was for years running for his life and living in caves and in the constant threat of assassination. Verse 33, "...who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back... They're dead by resurrection. and These are all fascinating things. You, wow, conquering. You know, Children received back from the dead. Mouths of lions stopped. And you can almost forget when you think about some of these things that there was much pain and much hardship along with the victories and the triumphs. Just for example, verse 35. And by the way, he's going to shift in verse 35. He's giving all of these, what we would think of as you know, these glorious victories. And then in verse 35, he shifts to a different um, aspect. But even in the midst of that shift, think about this. Women received back their dead. Now, you and I would say, wow, awesome. You know, the, the prophet comes to the woman at Sarepta, Elijah the prophet, and he raises her dead child. And then later, Elisha 
where the Shunammite woman raises her son from the dead. It's the power of God that raises him, but through the prophets Elijah and Elisha. But then think about this as well. What about the agony that these parents went through in losing these children to start with? And you go back and you read those accounts and you, you hear, especially with the widow from Sarepta when she tells Elijah that her son is dead, and you, you hear the agony in her petition. And the writer of Hebrews goes on and he says, again in verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured. Now he's talking again just about all of these saints of old who have lived by faith. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Lives of faith, yet filled with difficulties, persecution, hardships, strangers, living as strangers in a foreign land, facing lions, dungeons and pits, death. And then you fast forward to the New Testament and you can read, especially in the book of Acts, the accounts of the apostles and all of the afflictions that they suffered. Yes, you got the glorious triumphs of the gospel being spread throughout the, the empire and the world. But in the midst of all of that, the persecution, in fact, right from the beginning, the very thing that scatters the church so that they go out and preach the gospel is persecution. And we see Peter jailed and James killed by Herod. Stephen, the first martyr. And the term martyr, by the way, means witness. Stephen stoned to death. Got to be a horrible experience. And standing by holding the garments of those who are stoning Stephen is a young man named Saul of Tarsus who later is gloriously saved by God's grace and power and becomes the Apostle Paul. And oh, the stuff that Paul endures for the sake of the elect. Beaten by rods, with rods rather, shipwrecked, Stoned, he was also stoned and left for dead. Imprisoned, ridiculed, you, you name it. Paul endured it. And then you fast forward again into what we now know of as um, church history. Again, now this is where the extra biblical stuff comes in. In other words, we're, we're moving beyond 
the time of the New, uh, New Testament writings, the time that it's being written. And you think of people like Ignatius and Polycarp. And by the way, both of those men were disciples of the Apostle John. And Ignatius was martyred very early in the second century. He sent a letter to the Romans, same church that Paul is writing to and what we know is the book of Romans. Ignatius wrote him. Here's a quote from the letter. I'm writing to all the churches and I enjoin all. In other words, he's saying, I'm asking you to do something here. I'm pleading with you. I enjoin all that I am dying willingly for God's sake if only you do not prevent it. I beg you, do not do me an untimely kindness. Allow me to be eaten by the beast, which are my way of reaching to God. I am God's wheat, and I am to be ground by the teeth of the wild beast, so that I may become the purebred of Christ. And Polycarp, like I say, they were friends... Ignatius was bishop of Antioch and pastor there at Antioch, and Polycarp was bishop of Smyrna, what is today uh, part of uh, modern Turkey. It's one of the seven churches that Jesus sent a letter to in the book of, uh, book of Revelation. We have a rather lengthy account of his arrest and death, and I just want to read you a, a, a little bit. Of excerpts here. When he was arrested and as he was preparing to be executed, he said a voice, he heard a voice, and others who stood by heard it as well. They, they testified that they didn't see anybody, they just heard the voice. And the voice said this, quote, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. Unquote. That phrase, the man, that was the designation. That, that was used commonly for, to refer to Christ. Remember Pilate brought Christ out before the crowd and said, Behold the man. He, he, didn't know, he didn't know the fullness of what he was saying. The ultimate man. Behold the man. And so that became a phrase used to refer to Christ. And so this voice, Polycarp hears this voice, Play the man. Be strong and play the man. In other words, Follow, follow the example of Christ here. Face execution with courage. He was taken. <clears throat> he was taken before the authorities. Brought before a proconsul, who asked him. And, and by the way, Polycarp at this time is 86 years old. And while they didn't arrest him and do away with him sooner. Um, nobody knows, but he was 86 years old at this point. And he was brought before the proconsul, and he tried to persuade him to deny Christianity. He, he said, quote, Respect your age. Swear by the genius of Caesar. Repent. Say away with the atheist." Now that was a designation for Christians. The, the Romans referred to the Christians as atheists. Strange, isn't it? But the reason, the reason they did that, it was a very pluralistic 
pluralistic society, much like ours, and ours is growing more pluralistic all the time. You got all these various gods that they considered legitimate. You know, you, you couldn't have one is right and the rest are wrong. They were all considered to be equally legitimate. Well, the Christians denied that. They, de- they denied the legitimacy of the other gods, and so they were called atheists. And so the, what the proconsul is commanding Polycarp to do is denounce Christians. Say away with the atheists. <laughs> but, but the writer writes, the witness writes, Polycarp with a stern countenance looked on all the crowd, and this was before a huge crowd because he was about to be burned. He looked on all the crowd of lawless heathen in the arena, and waving his hand at them, he groaned and looked up to the heaven and said, Away with the atheist! Now they wanted him to say that denouncing Christians, but what he did was make a point of waving his hand at the crowd and say, Away with the atheist! And then the proconsul pressed him and said, Take the oath. That is to say that Caesar is Lord. That, that, that again was common. That, that's how they would um, condemn Christians to death. You must confess that Caesar is Lord. And of course they would refuse to do that and then be executed. And so the proconsul pressed him, Take the oath and I let you go. Revile Christ. Polycarp famously replied with these words, For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. And how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? They pressed him further, Swear by the genius of Caesar, he answered, If you vainly suppose that I will swear by the genius of Caesar, as you say, and pretend that you are ignorant of who I am, listen plainly. I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn the doctrine of Christianity, fix a day and listen. He said, I'll be be glad to instruct you. I mean, he's telling telling the proconsul this. The proconsul threatened him with wild beasts. Polycarp's response was, Call for them. For repentance from better to worse is not allowed us, but it is good to change from evil to righteousness. And the proconsul said, I will cause you to be consumed by fire if you despise the beast. Polycarp replied, You threaten with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in everlasting punishment. Why are you waiting? Come, do what you will. And they did. They burned him. Alive. William Tyndale, 16th century British Reformer, he's the one who translated for the first time the Bible from the original languages into English. 
And he had to stay on the run because of that. Because the English authorities, the church authorities, wanted to put him to death for it and for his um, acceptance of Reformation theology. So he stayed on the run throughout um, Europe, places in Germany and so forth. Continued to work, continued to translate, produce Bibles in English. They would smuggle them into Britain. But eventually he was caught. He was betrayed by a man that he thought was his friend. Turned over to authorities. On October the 6th, 1536, at Oxford in England, he was strangled to death and then burned at the stake. And the reason that they strangled him was because um, they, they said it was because he was an, a, a, an ordained minister with the church. They considered it an act of mercy. Rather than burning him alive, um, they strangled him and then burned him. Also, 16th century, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, Thomas Cranmer, they're referred to as the Oxford Martyrs. I love the story of Latimer and Ridley. They were burned together, you know, same time, same place. And Hugh Latimer, as they are hanging on the stake and the fire is being lit, he looks to his friend and says, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. That phrase sound familiar? Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. And he goes on to say, We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Unfortunately, I mean, you look at the circumstances today, it appears to have gone out over there. But they were willing to die for the furtherance of the gospel and gospel truth. Thomas Cramp, Cranmer, I mentioned a moment ago, uh, they, they, Ridley and, and uh, Latimer, were executed in 1555. Thomas Cranmer in 1556. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury. That's the highest position in the Anglican Church. But, but he was um, executed by Bloody Mary. You probably learned about Bloody Mary in your history classes. Um, she was the daughter of Henry VIII and she was ruthless. She burned him at the stake and many, many others. And I could go on and on and on for the sake of time I want. I will mention this. If you think all of these things are events of the past, they're not. They continue to this day. One reason that I mention them and read through them is because they're foreign to us. But in other countries, they're not so uncommon. Places like China, Cambodia, 
Vietnam, Sudan, Saudi Arabia. You could go on and on and on. point is this. There's a reason Paul makes the statement that he makes in verse 19. If there's no resurrection, Paul says, then we're of all people the most to be pitied. Paul didn't live a life, an extravagant life. He didn't live a life of comfort. Probably did before he met Jesus. He was a Pharisee. He was trained by one of their most noted, most famous rabbis, Gamaliel. He had the best in terms of education. But what Paul knew as a Christian was a life of hardship, persecution living as a stranger in a foreign land under the threat of death constantly. goes on to say, I die daily. It's not just a statement of self-denial like, you know, I try to deny myself. He's meaning I'm under, I'm under constant threat of death. And there's a reason that I'm willing to live like that, Paul is saying. We'll see later in this chapter, he mentions fighting with beasts at Ephesus. Now, I don't think he means literal beasts there um, because we know that that was a term they would use for violent men. And if you go back and read the Acts account of uh, when he was in Ephesus, you will see, um, and, and, and again, he's going to mention it even further in, in this chapter. And Paul says, if there's no resurrection, I've done all that in, in vain. I've, I've faced these dangers, these hardships, these trials in vain. But it's, it's not in vain. The Lord willing, we'll get to that tonight. I'm just going to mention it here. But you look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And then Paul's going to go from there into the whole application of that Awesome reality. It has implications for the Christian. Paul saying, if there's no resurrection, we're of all people the most to be pitied because we suffer in this world, is what Paul is saying. It's not just because we look stupid. I mean, that's what we're used to in the United States, isn't it? People, people think, oh, you're, you people are crazy. You, 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 just, you need some kind of emotional crutch to make it through life. You're weak-minded. Well, it's unpleasant to be thought of that way, although I tell you, you know, anytime that somebody accuses me of something like that, being weak-minded, I say, you're right. <laughs> you're right. I'm weak-minded. I'm weak. He is strong. I need Christ. But with Paul, it's more than just you know, being thought of as some, some, some kind of emotional or intellectual deficient uh, person. He was literally suffering. He wrote to the Philippians, It has been given unto you not only to believe on Jesus Christ, but to suffer for His sake. That was a reality for them in their day. 
There's a reality for all of these others that we've talked about. To some extent, it's a reality for you and I. There's another reason, and that's hitting on it right there. There's another reason that I mentioned all of these things in relation to this verse. It's because it's going to become more of a reality for us in this country. And what is going to give us hope same thing that gave Abraham hope, David, Elijah and Elisha, John the Baptist, Paul, John, James, Ignatius, Polycarp, William Tyndale, Thomas Cranmer. What gives us hope is what lies beyond this life. If in this life only we have hope, Paul says, we're of all people the most to be pitied. We're, we're a laughing stock because they see the persecution that we're going through. But it's not this life only in which we have hope. We do have hope in this life. In fact, Jesus said, in the world you have tribulation, just like we've been talking about. In this world, that's the norm for the Christian. That's what's to be expected. But, Jesus said, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Now, He's giving hope for now and for the future. But again, it's all based on what He has done in His life, death, and resurrection. Our hope rests upon the reality the objective reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The life, suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And all the implications that come with that. For example, Jesus said, because I live, you live. He said to Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes on Me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes on Me shall never die. It's because He lives, we live. It's because He was raised, we know we will be raised. And that's where our hope is. It's not in this world. It's not in the comforts of this world. It's in what lies beyond physical death. To be raised again to be with our Lord forever and ever and ever. That's, that's where our hope is now. That's what will give us hope in the midst of persecution when it comes. That's what gives millions of brothers and sisters around the world hope in persecution now. It is hope for this life, but it is not hope for this life only. world may. They may look at us, they may pity us. <laughs> but for us, be of good cheer. Now and when whatever comes, comes. Be of good cheer. For Jesus has overcome the world.
He was raised up out of death. And you and I will be also. Let's pray. In fact, I'm going to ask you to stand if you would. And we'll dismiss with a word of prayer. I do want to be clear on one thing. There's, there's no hope apart from Jesus Christ. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ. We'll see later in this same chapter. We all die in Adam. We all made alive in Christ. In Christ. In Christ. So that's, that's the issue. Are you in Christ? As you stand here today, can you honestly say that you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? When He died, the death that we've been discussing, when He died at Calvary, did He pay for your sins? Do you know that your sins were paid for by Jesus on Calvary's cross? Because the only hope is through faith in Jesus Christ. He is our hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word and for these precious truths. Resurrection life. Resurrection life now as we are privileged through faith in Christ to walk with You, to know You, to love You, to have Your Word, to know Your love for us. And resurrection life to come when we too will be literally, physically, bodily, raised and spend eternity in Your presence. And I do pray this morning, Lord, if there's anybody in this room who does not know You in truth, we look to You, Lord. The we, we, we can't see. We can't tell. You can. You're the heart knower. And you're the heart changer. So we pray. Open eyes. Raise the dead, Lord. For your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.